I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 24. At the beginning of this sermon, I'm only going to read verse 34. I plan to go through as much of the chapter as we have time to go through, but for beginning, I'm going to just read verse 34, Matthew 24:34. Our Lord says, "Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place." This is another one of those statements of Jesus that uh, has caused me considerable contemplation down through the years, because Jesus says some things before this that really sound like the end of the world. And through the years, as I've read uh, this chapter, this is part of the Olivet Discourse, and it appears in Mark and, and Matthew, and so... In the average year, I'll read all three of them at least once a year, and they all say, and all of this is going to happen while the people who are standing here are still alive, this generation will not pass away. A generation is anywhere from 35 to 40 years. So in the next 35 to 40 years, what I have said here is going to take place. So I want you to keep that in mind, that this is not my idea. So this is, this is not Jim Oreck saying all of this is going to happen within 35 or 40 years of Jesus saying it. It's Jesus saying all of this is going to happen within 35 to 40 years because there are some surprising things in here that I'm sure that you, like I, have relegated to uh, the distant future, not within 40 years of Jesus speaking, but 2,000 years or more in the future. But we just need to be corrected by the Word of God. Now, there is a very lengthy introduction to this sermon. I don't know if you pay any attention to the titles of the sermons. I don't always give one, but the title of this one is fairly significant. It says, Jesus lays a foundation for the book of Revelation. Because I think that if we understand what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 24, we are well on our way to having a better understanding of uh, much of the book of Revelation. Several years ago, I heard one of my favorite preachers, David Miller, give a very lengthy introduction to one of his sermons, and in this introduction, he uh, explained two or three Greek terms. He's from uh, way back in the woods of Arkansas, and he talks like this, Now, I know what some of you are thinking. He says this after he's given this 10-minute introduction. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, what is this ninny doing talking about Greek when he's supposed to be preaching? And in about 15 minutes, some of you are probably going to be asked that same question about me. When is Brother Jim going to get to the text? Well, let me justify this extra-long introduction because it is not only an introduction to this text, 
it is an introduction to the next section of the book of Revelation. And you, most of you know that I'm preaching through the book of Revelation. I've already made it through the first five chapters. The really controversial part starts in chapter 6. I'll say more about that. Chapters 6 through 19 are the section of Revelation that is really controversial. And uh, I'll explain to you the four basic views of, uh, of approaching chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation. So this long introduction is not just for this morning, it's for the next several weeks as well. In fact, this is such a long introduction that I actually have points to this introduction. So the first point is from Looney Tunes to Mozart. The, uh, the second point is, speaking of art, and uh, the third point is, what are the four views? And then finally, what do all four views hold in common? So, let's start off with from Looney Tunes to Mozart. Uh, Looney Tunes uh, would consist of the characters like uh, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Elmer Fudd, Porky Pig, and, uh, and so on. Uh, great classic cartoons. I grew up watching them as many of you did. And uh, there are things that happen. Did I, did I leave out Tweety Bird? Is that the discussion over here? I left out Tweety Bird, and they're upset with me, so. <clears throat> uh, Tweety Bird and Sylvester, okay, you can settle down now. <laughs> and I'm sorry if I never mentioned your favorite of the Looney Tunes, but just uh, very clever, uh, very clever cartoons. There are things that happen in Looney Tunes cartoons that don't happen in real life. D- uh, Bugs, Bugs Bunny might trick Elmer Fudd into shooting Daffy Duck in the face, and Daffy Duck doesn't die. His bill just gets put around to the side of his face. And Yosemite Sam comes in shooting, and he, he shoots somebody full of holes, and, and people don't die. I'm not exactly sure if the Roadrunner and the Coyote are part of Looney Tunes. They often are shown together. And uh, you, you see the coyote, he, he falls off of a cliff that uh, is so high that he just makes a little tiny, barely perceptible puff of smoke at the bottom, and then he gets up and walks out. It's almost as bad as when John Wick falls off of a, a five-story building and then he gets up and limps away. What you've got to do when you're watching Looney Tunes or when you're watching John Wick or you're watching Jason Bourne movies is that you've got to know there are things that happen in this world that don't happen in real life. This is a, this is a genre of art, Looney Tunes where people can fall off of cliffs that are thousands of feet high. They get up and they walk out. They may look like an accordion when they come out, but that's the sort of thing that happens in Looney Tunes' world. Another thing about art I'm going to illustrate with Mozart. So, not now, but sometime, go to YouTube and look up Mozart's variations on Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. So we all know the, the melody to Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. It's, it's used in several very famous settings. Did you know that Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star is also the setting for the ABC song? And that it's also the setting for Ba Ba Black Sheep. So we think that that melody was not written by Mozart, 
But shortly after it was written, Mozart developed 12 variations on Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And uh, so check it out sometime. It's just amazing. You can still hear the melody of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. But there are all sorts of embellishments that are going on. Things that are happening in, in the left hand, things that are happening with uh, a bunch of stuff that I don't understand, but it's, it's very different, it's engaging. And someone might say, what's wrong with Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star? I mean, it's just such a simple melody. We like that melody. And that's, that's true, but one of the things that, that art does is that it exaggerates sometimes so that things might become more beautiful, or that they might become more memorable, or that they might become more affective. And affective means that they stir you emotionally. So, speaking of art, let's think for just a bit about what art is. And this is Jim Oreck's definition of art. And if you've ever studied art, then you will know how controversial this is, but nevertheless, I think this is a very good working definition of art. Art is the deliberate attempt to make truth beautiful, memorable, and affective. So the Bible is full of art. That's why I'm mentioning it. So I'm not, I'm not just trying to give you a lesson in art. And it's applicable to what we're getting ready to study in Matthew 24 and also what we're getting ready to study in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is clearly written with artistry in mind. It's not written in a straightforward prose manner. It's written utilizing uh, characteristics of a genre of literature that is called apocalyptic literature. In apocalyptic literature, instead of uh, naming a character, then they might say, well, this person is a beast. And instead of just coming right out and saying his name, then they might say, well, this is, this is what his name amounts to in numbers. It's 666. And uh, you might get impatient with all that. Why doesn't he just come right out and say it? There are other times when great upheavals in a culture are described not in there was a coup in the land of so-and-so, or there's going to be a coup, and the king is going to be overthrown, and this guy's... Instead of that, it may be represented as, well, there's a beast with ten horns. And uh, they've not yet received power, but they will receive royal power for a single hour, and they're going to hand their power and authority over to the beast. But they're all going to destruction, and it's all, it's all written in a, in a mysterious way. Now, most of us have grown up in, uh, in educational settings where we, we have not been trained to have very much patience with that. This is one reason why some of you just, just can't enjoy poetry. Uh, well, that's one of the reasons, is because you weren't taught how to, how to carefully think about poetry and, uh, and how, how beautiful this can be. Uh, I admit that there are times when I get impatient with certain things that I'm trying to read. Several years ago, I tried to read the book Les Miserables, and I, it's about 1,000, 1,200 pages. I got about halfway through the thing, and the author spent 65 pages describing the streets of Paris, and I just said, that's it. 
I'm not going to stand for this. I'm just going to show you I will not read your book if you're going to do that. I think that some of us have sort of had that same reaction to the book of Revelation. This is so confusing. Who knows what this means? I'm just not going to even try to understand this book. Well, just remember that this is written artistically. It is written so that the the truth of the book of Revelation will be beautiful, so that it will be memorable, and so that it will move us emotionally. Did you know that there are seven liberal arts? Many of you got a liberal arts education, and you didn't know there are seven liberal arts. I'll have to save that for another time. There are also seven fine arts. There are seven fine arts, and since we're talking about art, I'll tell you what they are, and I'll tell you about them in a way that will help you to remember them. Okay, so let's imagine that you're going to go see a play, and as you approach the playhouse, you see that a lot of effort has gone into Uh, the architecture of the porch. It has pink stone steps. There are very, very tall pillars. So however tall you now imagine them to be, imagine them to be twice that tall. So in in remembering things, sometimes it helps to exaggerate them very much. So let's imagine that these pink pillars that are holding up the porch are like five stories high, really high. And so you walk up to the door, and it's an ornately carved door. It's, it's wood, not painted. And there are brass handles on the door with lions on top of them. Now, it's clear that this building has been designed for some purpose. It is not strictly function that led them to put five stories of pink pillars on the porch. He was, the, the architect was trying to communicate something in the same way that whoever designed this building was trying to communicate something. We don't need this much ceiling space in here. It actually makes it more expensive to heat and cool the place. We probably don't need this many windows in here. So why are churches so often lofty in their construction? Why do many churches have stained glass windows? Why does our church choose to have clear glass windows on one side. Well, there may be some practical reasons that I don't know about, but throughout history, this is the sort of thing that says we are here to direct our attention towards God. And so we want to have a high roof and we want to put steeples on top of our building so that it directs our attention up. And, uh, and we want to have windows that let in light because we, are, we want light to shine in upon our minds. And so there are reasons for architecture. Architecture is the first of the fine arts. Okay, let's open the door. You walk in, and now I want you to imagine one of the most famous sculptures of all time, Rodin's The Thinker. So so you've got this guy who's, yeah, yeah, some of you are doing it. He puts his hand on his fist. Uh, I think this actually was uh, supposed to represent Dante and uh, contemplating uh, the, the levels of hell. But anyway, Rodin, the very famous, very famous uh, sculpture, he's looking down. Now, as he's looking down, I want you to imagine him looking at the most famous painting in the world, the Mona Lisa. So he's looking down at the Mona Lisa. And then I also want you to imagine that Rodin's, uh, Rodin's sculptor of the thinker has got headphones on. He's listening to music 
And to help us remember the headphones, let's make them fluorescent pink. So he's wearing fluorescent pink headphones. So making things ridiculous helps you to remember them that way. Those are the next three fine arts. So there's sculpture, there's painting, and then there's music. So we've got four of the seven fine arts. Now, it's time for us to go to the play. And so, as is sometimes the case, before the play, there is a, a pre-performance. And in this case, it is uh, little girls dressed in tutus with stars on their heads. And they're, they're dancing around. And that is the fifth of the fine arts. There's dance. And, but then, it's time for the play. And so, I want you to imagine your favorite actor being... One actor or actress being on the stage. Don't know who that is. I won't suggest someone. You just think of your favorite actor or actress. But I want you to think of the other person as being William Shakespeare. So you see William Shakespeare's face. And there are these two actors that are on the stage. The first actor that you thought of represents drama. And William Shakespeare represents poetry. And those are the seven fine arts. Now I'm going to give you a quiz. Some of you kids on the way out. What are the seven fine arts? It's easy to remember now. There's architecture, there's sculpture, there's painting, there's music, there's dance, there's drama, and there's poetry. Did you know that almost all seven of those appear in the book of Revelation? Well, I have to do a little bit of wedging in for a couple of them, but here's, here's the way I see it. So, first of all, architecture. Yeah, the New Jerusalem is described as a city that is built four square. Its length the same as its width and its height the same. About 1,300 miles. Well, you talk about something that is exaggerated for the sake of effect. There you go. So it, architecture, wall of the city has 12 gates. On each of the 12 gates, the name are 12 angels. Then there are 12 foundations. The names of the 12 disciples are on the 12 foundations. Each of the foundations is made of a different stone. Architecture figures prominently in the book of Revelation. And then what about, what about sculpture? Well, we don't see a, a statue, but we do see the image of the beast. We do see people who are worshiping images, idols that are made of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. So there is some statuary, that, uh, some images that appear in the book of Revelation. What about paintings? No paintings for sure, but there are some very graphic descriptions of the people that we see in the book of Revelation. So we saw last week that Jesus is described as having seven horns and seven eyes. And uh, he, he's described as having a, a rainbow over his head in one place, his face shining like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire. And so they're very verbal paintings, if you please, of things that are happening. What about music? Oh, yeah. In the book of Revelation, uh, we hear that there is a group of people who are singing a, no, a new song, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. Most of the songs that I'm teaching you from the book of Revelation are songs that are in the book of Revelation, little, little songs, little poems that are in the book of Revelation. Several of them are sung. Well, is there dance? Well, in, insofar as dance is representative physical movement, then we might say, and this is the one that I have to kind of wedge in, we might say that when the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb and cast their crowns before Him, that's a representative movement. It is saying we, we, we adore you, all that we are is owing to you. Uh, what, about, what about drama? Oh, yeah, 
That's drama. Then a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, a great dragon with ten horns and seven heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky. The dragon stands before the woman who's about to give birth so that when she gives birth, he might devour her child. But when she gives birth, then the child is caught up to God and to his throne. And then, the, and then war arises in heaven. Oh yeah, there's a lot of drama. And then poetry. Yes, there's so much poetry. Poetry, not just uh, words that are written in verse, but language that is written to be deliberately affective. Not merely to communicate information, but to influence the way that you feel about that information. And so the book of Revelation is a very artistically crafted book. With just a little bit of uh, finagling, we can see that all seven of the fine arts are evidenced in the book of Revelation. All right, now that's the second point of my introduction. So first of all, we went from Looney Tunes to Mozart. We saw that there are certain genres of entertainment that you just have to recognize in this world, this is the way that they speak. And that's the way it is in Revelation world. There are just certain ways that they talk. Not everything is to be taken literally, but this is the way that they talk in Revelation world. And then also we expect that there will be great embellishments. But we like artistic embellishments because it makes truth beautiful. It makes truth memorable and it makes truth emotionally affective. What are the four views that are taken towards the book, uh, toward the book of Revelation? Well, I have a little illustration for you this morning to help you understand these four views. And I think you'll recognize this to be an hourglass. And it actually measures an hour. I've, I've timed it before. And uh, one view of the book of Revelation can be represented by this hourglass as I'm holding it right now. Most everything from chapter 6 through chapter 19 has already happened. That view is called the preterist view. So preterist is a word that is taken from linguistics. It just means past. And so the preterist view is that most of what has happened, most of what we read about in Revelation 6 through 19 has already happened. And then there's another view, which I'm going to guess is what most of you have heard most of your life, and that's the futurist view. That is, that everything that is described in Revelation 6 through 19 is still in the future. It hasn't happened yet. Now, it would be really handy if I had half of this uh, already down in the bottom glass, but you'll just have to trust me that it, it, is, it is going through there. You can't see the little grains of sand, but you can probably see that there's sand in the bottom. This represents a third and a fourth view. A third view is that the things that we read in Revelation 6 through 19 are things that have literally happened and are continuing to happen in history. But they literally happened. So, for example, when we read that uh, an angel comes down from heaven, he's given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, he opens the shaft of the bottomless pit, smoke comes out. From the smoke come locusts on the earth. These people who are called historicists would say, 
That describes the invasion of the Muslim hordes into, into Europe. So there's a specific, a specific historical event that that points forward to. Another example would be uh, the, many of the Puritans and even in the Baptist Confession of 1689, the Pope of Rome is, is identified as the Antichrist. And so that would be another instance of the historicist position. And, uh, of course, a problem with the historicist position is that everyone who believes it thinks that they are at the end of things, and they're always identifying things, and as the years go by, then their theories have to be scuttled and new theories have to be taken on. But anyway, the, the hourglass with some of the, some of the sand in the bottom and some of the sand in the top represents the historicist view. And then there's another view that can also be represented this way, and it's called the idealist view. And the idealist view is that what's described in Revelation chapter 6 through 19 uh, is a dramatic presentation of spiritual principles that happen over and over again. So uh, that we're not to expect a, a literal beast to come, but the beast represents uh, secular governments and the way that they persecute the people of God. The beast that has two horns it represents uh, religions that persecute Christians, but the religions work in, uh, in cahoots with the secular religions. That's the idealist position. And so that the, the book of Revelation is uh, a, a telling of spiritual conflicts that go on again and again throughout history. Now, if you are interested, uh, Elizabeth, I'd like for you to bring up the cover of that book that I showed to you. If you're interested in reading all four of these views, then you may want to get this book. It's called Revelation, Four Views, Revised and Updated, and the editor is Steve Gregg. I have this book. It is a a very interesting book. And uh, so if you want to get this book and follow along with, uh, with what are the various views, because I'm, I'm planning on taking just one view, and I'll tell you what that view is in just a moment. But if you're interested, then uh, you can tell me on the way out, and I can put in an order. They're $18. So on Amazon, they're $18. If you have a Prime account, you can order them yourself. But if you don't, you want me to order them for you, just let me know, and then you can, uh, you can pay, me when, or pay me or Dean, however we decide to buy it. But anyway, this, that's a very interesting book. So there are these four views. The, uh, the preterist view, which says that everything is past. The futurist view, which says everything is future. And then the idealist and the historicist view, which in some way or another say these things have been happening throughout history and continue to happen now. Now, what do all four of these views hold in common? And I've asked Elizabeth to bring up our confession of faith, the Baptist faith and message. And so here is what it says in the Baptist faith and message, which is the, uh, the confession of Southern Baptist churches. And it is our confession of faith. It says, God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. Well, now that's just about as generic as you can possibly be. But... I'll say more about that in just a moment. God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. 
According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. So all four positions believe that. And the dead will be raised, and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. We all believe that. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. What do I think about that confession? It's very good. It's really good. It boils down the essentials. It does not go into various details so that uh, three-fourths of the people who believe something about the book of Revelation couldn't sign it. And so I think that this is, a, this is a very good confession of faith regarding what we believe regarding the end times. So when you hear me say that I am a preterist, don't say, Brother Jim doesn't believe that Jesus is coming back, because I do. I believe this. I believe that Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised and so on. I believe this. But I believe what Jesus says when he says in in Matthew chapter 24, my text for the rest of this morning, the things that he describes in this book are going to happen within 35 to 40 years of when he's speaking. And I think that what Jesus describes here in Matthew chapter 24 are a brief foundation of the book of Revelation. So with that, uh, with that very lengthy introduction in mind, which is an introduction not just to this passage, but also to what, what's coming in the book of Revelation, now let's turn our attention to Matthew chapter 24. You may see that it is 51 uh, verses long, and so I'm going to have to be fairly brief and mostly just hit the things that are most likely to cause you uh, to question how could this possibly have already taken place? So, I'm going to move a lot faster than I usually do when I'm preaching through things, but let's begin in verse 1. Matthew 24 and verse 1, we have a very pointed prediction and very pointed questions. Jesus left the temple and was going away when His disciples came to point out to Him the buildings of the temple. But He answered them, "'You see all these stones, do you not?' Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will, be, that will not be thrown down. So that's a very, very specific prediction. Jesus says this temple is going, to be thrown, is going to be torn down. Not even one stone is going to be left on another. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, now here comes a very pointed question. As he sat on the Mount of Olives... By the way, this is called the Olivet Discourse because he gives it when he's on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I don't take that to be three different questions. I take that to be three different ways of looking at the same, the same statement that Jesus has made. When, when is the temple going to be destroyed? What is going to be the sign that you're going to do this, which obviously is going to be the end of the age? Now, I have to explain a few Greek words for you here, and uh, at least the first one here, that the word age just means a period of time. 
So the, the disciples, Jesus, they are at the end of a period of time that has lasted between 15 and 1600 years. And it has been a very significant aeon. That would be the, the Latin way of pronouncing what in English is age. It's been a very, it's been a very long, uh, august time of God revealing himself to the people of Israel. That starts with Abraham, but uh, in, a, in a couple of years, then he makes a covenant with Israel. And you can read about the covenant with Israel, the specific, so we're not going to turn to it this morning. But what you'll see if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28 is that the first 10 or 15 or 20 verses are taken up with, here's how God will bless you if you obey me. And then about three-fourths of the chapter is taken up with, here is how God is going to curse you and punish you if you disobey him. And, you know, it's it just very drastic, predicts such things as you will resort to cannibalism and you'll be, you'll be under siege. And uh, whereas you at one time were able to chase armies with just a few, now just a few will chase you. And it's, 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 a, very, it's a very sad chapter. And the end of that chapter is about to be fulfilled on Jerusalem. And that's what Jesus is predicting. So it is the end of an age. Now, there are some... Uh, there's some very lofty language that is used to describe the destruction of Jerusalem. And, uh, and like it's going to be the end of the world. It was the end of a world. It was the end of the, the world of God communicating with the Jews. And the beginning of a new world of God's uh, dealing not just with one particular nation, but with all people from all nations who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's the end of a very important age, and it's the beginning of a very important age. Let's go on. Jesus answered them, verse 4, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. So Jesus is laying down some things that are going to happen before the end. And remember, Jesus says, all this is going to happen within the lifetime of people who are standing here. And so we can read in history. There's one history book that is especially beneficial, the writings of a Jewish man who was not a Christian named Josephus, and he describes many of these things in great detail. And uh, so these things happened. There were famines. There were earthquakes. Nations were at war. There was great turmoil in the Roman Empire. Uh, a very, very bad man who is notorious throughout history for badness, a man named Nero, was going to take, uh, take the throne after Jesus says this. He's going to be an extremely wicked man. There's going to arise a war between the Jews and the Romans. The Romans are going to surround the city of Jerusalem at the time of Passover. And so there are millions of people in Jerusalem when the Romans surround. And during the siege of Jerusalem, there's great strife among the Jews. In fact, more people died from the Jews killing one another than from the Romans killing them. The city of Jerusalem is split into three factions. Food was extremely scarce. They were fighting one another over the food. There are instances of cannibalism, just as, uh, as was predicted in Deuteronomy chapter 28. 
so it's, it's, it's really a terrible, terrible time of starvation and persecution so that it merits what Jesus is getting ready to tell us. So he says in verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to, the, to tribulation and put you to death. He's talking to his disciples. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So that happened in the siege of Jerusalem. And by the way, the siege of Jerusalem lasted right about three and a half years, which is 42 months or 1,260 days or a time times and half a time. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you know that all three of those, all three of those time measurements show up in the book of Revelation. It happened right at about three and a half years. And uh, so people were betraying. Many false prophets will arise and lead, you, and lead many astray. And because lawlessness, lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And now you're saying, okay, that has not happened. Surely this has got to be. All right, remember, Jesus says all this is going to happen within the next 35 to 40 years. Now, how do, you, how do we understand this? Well, first of all, turn to the very last chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 16. And in Romans chapter 16, uh, so I'm scanning over, I didn't, I, I, I don't have notes for this, and so I'm I'm scanning over there someplace here in Romans chapter 16 when it talks about the gospel being proclaimed in the whole world. If one of you sees that before I do, then uh, call that out. Which? Verse 26. Okay, I'm on the wrong page. Well, there's not, there's not a Roman. Oh, I'm in 1 Corinthians. No wonder I can't find it. No wonder I can't find it. So, uh, Romans 16, 26. Thank you, uh, whoever found that. So, but he, this gospel, the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been known to all nations. So Paul says it's already been made known to all nations. Turn over a few pages to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and in verse 6. The gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. So he already, Paul already writes Colossians. It's already been Look at verse 23 in the same chapter. So Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23. Uh, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so we might say, wow, Jesus said that it would be proclaimed in the whole world before the end comes. Paul says that's already happened. Now, did somehow the gospel come to the Mayan Indians who are living in South America? 
Did somehow the, the gospel come to the, the, the nations of the Sioux if they were living on the plains of North America? I don't think, I, we don't have any record of that in the Bible. So I think that what, what is meant is that not just among the Jews, but among the nations around the Jews, the gospel is going to be proclaimed. You may recall that on the day of Pentecost, the, uh, when, when Peter preaches and there are several thousand people who are saved, there is a long list of the various nations that were represented there in Jerusalem when he preached that first sermon. And so, uh, evidently, this was fulfilled before 70 A.D. Jesus said, some of you will not die before this happens. What about verse 15? So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Well, please, I do want to understand. What is the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel? Well, let's turn in our Bibles now to Luke chapter 21, where we find uh, Luke's uh, description of the Olivet Discourse. And in Luke chapter 21, let's look at verses 20 and 21. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Well, that's a lot less mysterious, isn't it? So it's, it is the desolation that is surrounded by armies. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart, and so on. But the parallel passage in Luke describes the, ab- the abomination that causes desolation as the armies that will be surrounding Jerusalem. So let's go back to, Re- to Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus says, when that happens, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation. Note that. There will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No and never will be. Now, a couple of things here that need to be explained. First of all, it always puzzled me before I embraced the preterist view, it always puzzled me, what good is it going to do for someone who is on the housetop to not go down and get his coat? The whole place is going to be burned up. I mean, this is like Hiroshima times a billion. It doesn't do any good to say, well, I hope the, I'm going to try to get to the mountains before this thing falls out. It does, just doesn't do any good if you're talking about the consummation of the ages when the Lord comes back in flaming fury. You're not going to get, it's not good any good for you to run away. It would be like if, if an atomic bomb is going to fall on that field out there. There's no point in us getting our cars and starting to head east or west. We're going to die. But if it is a localized thing, then it makes sense. Hey, when you see this happening, it's time to leave your stuff. Don't go back and get your coat. Head for the mountains. And Josephus says that there were many thousands of Christians who followed this advice. Advice. They went to a little town called Pella and they were spared from the siege and the death and devastation that took place in the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus is telling them, hey, when you guys, 
when you guys see this happening, when you see the armies surrounding, when you see them coming, get out of town. Go find someplace safe to be. What about Jesus saying, there there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. Well, first of all, notice that if he's describing the tribulation that is coming at the end of the world, there's no point in his adding and never will be. Because there's no future for there to never will be in if it's the end of time. So Jesus is describing the terrible, terrible tribulation that took place during the siege of Jerusalem, and uh, which is described in history books. And uh, you might say, well, you mean the suffering of the Jews under Hitler was not as bad as this? Or other Jewish persecutions is not as bad? I think that when you take into account the spiritual aspect and add that to what Josephus describes as took place, that it was Jews killing Jews mostly, times of extreme starvation, that the words of Jesus are indeed true. Of course, if he's describing Jerusalem, then we don't need Josephus or anybody else to confirm that it's true. It's true that that great tribulation was something that was never like it, and there never will be anything like it again. And verse 22 says, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. In the next few verses, I'm going to, I'm going to summarize quickly here because we're out of time. I'm going to summarize quickly here. He says, There will be false Christs, people who will say, Well, there Jesus is, there Jesus is. Don't believe them. When I come, it's going to be extremely obvious. It's going to be like lightning coming from the east and shining to the west. And that's how it was when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, verses 29 through 31 can cause you problems. So how do we explain this? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. You say, well, that... That just has not happened. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Now, here's where I've got to give you just a little Greek lesson. The word that is translated earth there can equally well be translated land. So all the tribes of the land, that is the land of Israel, will mourn. So not the Mayans in South America or in Central America, but all the tribes around around uh, Jerusalem will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So, Jesus coming on the clouds is a picture. It's an artistic, apocalyptic picture of His coming in judgment. And the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light and the stars falling from heaven, the powers of heaven being shaken, that is an old world disappearing and making way for a new world. But it's not literal. It's the old world of the Jewish dispensation being shaken loose and being destroyed and the new dispensation of the kingdom of God administered by Christ coming about. Verse 31, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. He said, well, surely that has not happened. Remember that I've been telling you that the word that is sometimes translated angels means messengers. And so after the destruction of Jerusalem, 
then the message of the gospel goes out, continues to go out all over the world, and the elect are gathered in as they hear the gospel. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So... One of the principles that we need to bring to the book of Revelation is let's let the simple inform the complicated. And to me, it's a pretty simple statement that Jesus makes here. All this stuff that I've said since you asked me, when will these things be and what will be the signs of the end of the age and of your coming? All of these things that I have just described are going to happen in the next 35 to 40 years. And so I just want to remind you again, I acknowledge that if this is the first time you've heard this, it can be disconcerting. And you think, wow, I've just, I've just never heard that before. Uh, so let me remind you, I'm not the one who said that it was going to happen in the next 35 to 40 years. And I've read this for years and years and thought, well, surely this is describing some things that are going to happen at the end of time. There may be some things that this is going to be like at the end of time, but we need to have a good biblical reason for saying he has a dual meaning here, that he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and he's talking about what is going to happen at the end of time. Finally, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So, Even Jesus, the Son of Man, did not know the specific day and hour when this was going to happen. But he knew it was going to happen within the lifetime of some of the people who were standing there. So he had a a general idea, going to happen in this generation. But the specifics of it, even Jesus at that time did not know. Only the Father knew. Well, there... There hasn't been a whole lot of gospel in in this message... That is, I haven't told people, if you're, if you're lost, here's how you get saved. But here are some very important elements of the gospel that are part of your coming to Christ. One is that Jesus knows how to judge. And one is, another is that Jesus is, contr- is in control of the universe. Jesus has been exalted to be the great administrator of everything that the future held when he was on earth that the future has held as we look back and that the future holds as we go forward. Jesus is the king. He is in control of all of this. This king is also a merciful king. He warns his people, you can escape this. And Jesus, as a merciful king, warns you not how to escape the destruction of America, but how to, dis- how to avoid the destruction of the world. And that is that you should flee to Him. Embrace Him as your Savior and Lord. He is the Lord. And each of us needs to say, I will submit to His Lordship and follow after Him. All right, it's time for us to observe the Lord's Supper.